Good morning. Alright, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 15 today, if you want to start turning there. And, uh, we had quite a week last week, right? We had three really great examples of faith. First, we had Jonathan that showed us how to live faithfully, um, even when we didn't know exactly what it was that God had planned. Next, we had Saul that shows us what happens when we don't have faith and we trust in our own power and our own intellect. And finally, we had God. The ultimate example of faithfulness. Amen. Not constrained to save by many or by few. Unfortunately, we had to end on a, a rather sour note. If you remember, uh, the last several verses of our passage uh, was kind of outlining what would happen uh, with the rest of Saul's kingship. And it was a little depressing because we saw that while God strengthened him uh, militarily, uh, there was no change of heart. Saul's heart never turned back to God. He appears to have gained the world, but at the cost of his soul. Today we're going to dig into just how far Saul's heart was from the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is sort of a, a transitionary chapter. After this chapter, we will hear about Saul again, but he won't be the main character anymore. God gave the Israelites exactly what they asked for, and this was the result. Now God is going to pick a king, a king after his own heart. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's chapter 16. We're not going there. Today we're going to stick with chapter 15. If you uh, ran out of the door today and you forgot your Bible, feel free to shoot up your hand and we'll bring you a copy of God's Word. Uh, but we're going to read 1 Samuel 15 uh, together. So starting in verse 1, 1 Samuel uh, 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child, infant, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkey. Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. <coughs> Excuse me. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fat, fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my command. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the 
Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made to be the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back to following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. May God add his understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that what we don't have you would give us, what we don't know you would teach us, and that your words would be marvelous to us. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. As I mentioned before, Saul, uh, Saul's reign of, as king was kind of outlined for us in the final chapter or final verses of chapter 14. And I said that God made Saul strong militarily, but Saul's heart continued to drift away from Yahweh. And today's chapter uh, shows us a continuation of that tragic pattern. We see in verse 1 uh, that Samuel said to Saul, 
the Lord sent me to anoint this king. And then in verse 2, he says, uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, and pronounces this judgment on Amalek. And it's quite an opening, right? Saul, Saul's reminded that uh, he serves at the pleasure of the Lord. And he serves uh, based on what Samuel tells him to do. And then Samuel gives him a task. And it's a task that, quite frankly, in the 21st century might seem kind of brutal. Maybe overkill. Verse 3 says, Now go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Just who was this Amalek? Well, Amalek was a people group. right? And what had they done to make God issue this extreme order? The ladies are studying Exodus um, in their Bible study right now, so they may remember. They may not, though. I'm not going to call anybody out. <laughs> in Exodus, right, the, the, the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, and as they're traveling along, uh, one of the people that attacked them are the Amalekites. And uh, they attack them, and that's bad, right? If you attack God's people, you must have a death wish, because God does not like it when you attack his people. But that's not the whole story. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, and we're going to go to verse 17 in Deuteronomy uh, 25. And in chapter 25, we see some sundry laws. Sundry meaning um, in addition to, right? Sundry laws are laws that are uh, tacked on to the law. They're not necessarily having to do specifically with the law, but they're other laws that apply. And so we get different laws. And one of those laws, uh, we see uh, the 39 and 1 lashes. You see right there, I, I forget what verse, I think it's verse 3 where we turn. Yeah, verse 3. You can beat someone 40 times, but no more. 40 times is the limit. Right? We see in 2 Corinthians 11.24, Paul says he received the 39 and 1 lashings from the Jews. This is where it comes from, right here, Deuteronomy 25. Um, tucked in and amongst these laws, though, it's kind of weird. It's like, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And then you hit verse 17. And verse 17 says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So we see there these Amalek wasn't quite the nice people. This wasn't a, a bunch of fluffy, bunny-loving, flower-giving people. Right? These were people that when the Israelites were coming in, uh, they would attack the rear. And if you think about this for a second, think about Jacob and Esau. When uh, Jacob was about to meet Esau after he'd stolen his birthright, birthright, it had been several years, and he had his own family now, and they were, they were coming together to meet, and Jacob was scared. He thought Esau was going to take him out. So what he does is he separates his column into two. And he leaves the women and children behind, and he, he goes with his fighting forces up front. All in the hopes that if they do get attacked, the women and children can get away. Which is exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were walking along, and they would put their, the ark would go before them, and their big army would go uh, behind that. And if they encountered trouble, the army was there to, to break through and bring everybody through. But in the back, 
is where you have the, the elderly, the injured, the women with small children, little babies, that couldn't move as fast. And that's where Amalek would come in. And they would kill them all, and they would take their stuff. And then they'd run away before the military could get back to where they were. Sounds like a pretty grievous judgment, though, right? Like all out. Even the zombies. I like zombies. <laughs> Fight them all. But do you know that as squeamish as this passage makes us feel, there's an even worse judgment that's already been given, but not yet fulfilled. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 9. Uh, this is a plain in indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's talking to the Christian church there in Thessalonica. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Praise God that our God is a just God. He's full of grace and mercy so that all who believe will be clothed in Christ's righteousness and escape judgment. But just like Amalek in our story today, judgment will come. And we can stamp our feet and shake our fist at the sky and say, that's not fair! And the response to that is, you're right, that's not fair. Every sinner should die. Every sinner should die. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. And if you turn back to your passage today, and you say, well, they didn't have Jesus, it's not fair for them. My response would be a name. They have. If you remember, when the Israelites were coming into the land, they were to destroy Jericho. Remember, they marched around the walls and the walls came tumbling down? In there, there was a lady by the name of Rahab, a prostitute. And she hid two spies. And she, she placed her faith in Yahweh. And because of that, she hung a little red ribbon around her door, and her family was saved when Jericho was destroyed utterly. She turned to Yahweh, and she was saved. Well, it's been 300 years since uh, the, the announcement that uh, Moses made that Amalek needed to be wiped out, and no one's turning to Christ, or to God, to Yahweh in this case, right? It's been 300 years, no heart change. I would say that God is long-suffering. And now with no heart change for Amalek, judgment time has come. And Saul receives his marching orders, and he is to go full scorched earth on Amalek. It's a solemn task. We see even the animals are to be destroyed. This isn't a, a fun smash and grab to uh, enrich the Israelites. They're not going to uh, carry away wealth and, and animals. It's a solemn duty. And the only joy to be taken from it is the fact that Israel is carrying out God's orders. So Saul receives the, the command, and Saul does what Saul does best. He counts. 
Right? That's what he did in the last chapter. He's doing it in this chapter too. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. It's a big army. And he comes to the city of Amalek and he sets an ambush. And Saul says to the Kenites, they're like, hmm, what are the Kenites? He says, get out of there. We're going to destroy the Amalekites. Well, we don't have time for this one today, but for homework, go home and read Numbers chapter 24. In Numbers chapter 24, you're going to find this interesting character by the name of Balaam. And uh, Balaam was tasked with cursing the Israelites, but God wouldn't let him. So he ends up blessing the Israelites and cursing everybody else. And in that curse, uh, he mentions Amalek and says they'll be destroyed. And he makes mention of the Kenites and says they will be saved. And wouldn't you know it, just like God said it would happen, it happened. So we see initially Saul taking care, great care, to ensure that, that, that God's word is followed accurately. And at first blush, the battle seems to go well. Saul defeated the Amalekites. From Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, that probably means nothing. You might know where east of Egypt is. But in, in Egypt's here, and you kind of go up the, the crescent there, and here's Israel, and he goes down here, and he just wipes them all out down here, right, south of Israel. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Saul succeeds. And just when it looks like things are looking up for old Saul, we get verse 8. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the rest of the sheep and all the goats, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. Those they destroyed. Okay, so just so we're clear here, based on what we just read, who didn't kill Agag? Saul, right? Who uh, spared best sheep? Oxen, fatlings, lambs, all that. Saul. Saul. The people were there, but Saul's the king. He's the boss. Right? And, and they spared him. And why? Why? If you look at verse 9, about halfway through, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. They were not willing to follow God's command. But they were willing to destroy the worthless ones. Little three legged sheep with one eye, they knock that guy out real quick. But the nice fat cow, right? They're thinking shady bristles. Like, I'm not killing that thing. I'm going to take that thing back. All right. So we have that straight, right? Saul, Saul. Saul was a problem. Verse 10, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. And he says, I regret that I've made Saul king. And Samuel's distressed and he cries out to the Lord all night. And I promise you, I will get back to this God regretting. Because that's troubling if you think about it for a little bit. How could God regret? We'll get to that at the end of this chapter. But I do want to point out Samuel's response. Here he is, and it's been several years since Samuel stood up in front of the Israelites and said, I'm old and gray. Now he's even older and even grayer. And God comes to him and says, uh, Saul's got to go. The one thing that, that, that Samuel's been working on, this king, he's been working on it in, in gone down in flames. And I'm sure we've all had a leader that has failed us in one way or another. And the pain of having a godly person crash and burn in front of us is, is very real and leaves deep scars. And here Samuel is showing us his grief and I think he probably knew something like this was going to happen. I mean, based on the last chapter when Saul lost the kingdom, right, he probably sensed it was heading this way. He could talk to Saul, but now it was here. 
and it was very real and he was in his face and it hurt. He gets up uh, the next morning. He reminds me of Abraham here uh, in his response. Remember, Abraham was told to, to sacrifice his son Isaac, and it was a terrible and difficult order. And Abraham gets up early the next morning to make it happen, just like Samuel does here. There's just something about having to deal with something that difficult. You don't want to wait. So just build in your mind. So I'm just going to get up early, and I'm going to go find Saul. In verse 12, he gets a little bit of, of, of insight here. He's, in verse 12, he says he found somebody, and they said, oh, he went to Carmel, and he set up a monument to himself. And then he turned and went to Gilgal. Now that's a little, uh, if you don't know the geography there, proceeded down to Gilgal. Gilgal is actually kind of northeast, right? But they're in the hills right now. So proceeding down means he went down the hill to Gilgal. So he goes up north to Gilgal. And I think at this point, this probably helped Samuel just a little bit. If Samuel was in any doubt that Saul was the wrong man for this job, he gets a, a peek into, into Saul's heart here. Saul sets up a monument for himself after the victory. We don't really need to labor over this point. We've been studying ancient Israel for quite a while now. I think we all have enough experience in our own lives to know just who is responsible for the victory in our lives. It ain't us. It definitely wasn't Saul. So Samuel has to hunt down Saul. You can find him there Presumably in Gilgal, here comes big old goofy Saul to meet him. He probably remembers the last chapter when he when Samuel came and, and Samuel, what have you done? You know, so he thought he'd just cut him off the tracks. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. There are a, a few verses that keep you up at night. They make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you read. One of them is Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The verses around that explain that there will be some that say, we cast out demons in your name. We perform great miracles in your name. And Jesus turns to them and says, I never knew you. I never knew your heart. You were just doing things on the exterior. Wrong. This one follows closely behind it. Saul firmly believes he has carried out the command of the Lord. And he's proud of it, right? He set up a monument to himself. He did such a good job, he gets a statue. And this is, this is the perfect picture of how sin can distort and blind a person. To the point where they don't even realize that they're sinning. I, I've mentioned the latter half of, of Romans chapter 1 several times to kind of give you clarity of what's going on with our nation right now. What's going on with our, our culture. To help you comprehend the insanity that sometimes just seems to, per to pervade everything around us. But Romans 1 can also speak of what happens to individuals. Sin can have the same blinding effect on an individual that it can society. And that's what we see here with Saul. He walks out to greet Samuel without a care in the world. But he doesn't fool Samuel. Folks, this is the reason, one of the reasons that we need other believers in our lives to challenge us, to call us out when we fail, and if true repentance is given, lovingly restore us back to the family of God. Mm -hmm. The 
Samuel challenges Saul. I love Samuel, man. He's a kind of sarcastic guy. I think he'd get along. But Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen which I hear? And look at Saul's response. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spare the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. All the bad stuff they did. But the one thing that they did, we did. Samuel's had enough. The, the ESV is kind of kind. It says wait. Right? The, or I'm sorry, the NASB says wait. But if you have an ESV version of the Bible, it says stop. Right? You, can, you can just see like Saul's just, and he says stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Hold on. Speak. Come in. I'm pretty sure he regretted saying that. Because Samuel's going to lay out three points against Saul. In verse 17, he's going to remind him of his position. Though you were little in your own eyes, God was with the king of Israel. In verse 18, he's going to remind him of the mission he was supposed to do. Go out and exterminate everything. And then in verse 19, he's going to show Saul what he did. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel sees right through Saul's malarkey. And he uses the, the singular form of you there in the, in the Hebrew when it says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? He wasn't going you, he was going you. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Yeah, that's one little kid, right? I did clean my room. He's pointing on the floor. I did do it. My kids like the Lord. And he says, he says, I went on the mission the Lord sent me. And then I can almost envision it in my head. He kind of mutters this second part under his breath. And brought back there the king of the Amalek. And have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And he tries to slip that in there. Because he was supposed to kill them all. But here's this King Agag that he didn't kill. And then he says, but the people took some of the spoil. But they did it for a good reason. They did it to, to sacrifice to the Lord. They had a good intention. It's like when you tell your kid to do the dishes and they don't do the dishes, but they make a nice big hot cup of coffee. Oh, hot cup of coffee. Cold day. Sit on the front porch, sip your coffee. You walk back inside, and the sink's still cold. <laughs> I did it. We definitely get a view into Saul's heart here. Just like the last chapter, Saul is justifying his actions. The human brain is so powerful, and sin is so blinding that sometimes, even with the facts and the truth, we have the ability to work around them and to justify just about anything. And that is what is so terrifying about this passage. Like Saul, we all have the ability to perform mental gymnastics to get around the fact that we sin. If I'm speeding, I'm keeping up with the flow of traffic. If I'm screwing around on the internet all day at work, I don't get paid enough anyway, so why would I work all day? If you're a dinosaur like me, maybe you remember CDs. Remember those? If my friend black me, that old man. 
my friend pays for a CD, why can't I just burn a copy of it? They make a gazillion dollars off those CDs, why can't I just burn a copy of it? I used to think my parents were such sticks in the mud because they wouldn't let me copy my friend's music. And maybe my mom and dad didn't get everything right, but looking back, they were trying to get me to understand that sin is a slippery slope. We can justify theft until the cows come home. We may even be able to convince those around us that it's right. But there's one person that you will never convince that any sin, no matter how small it seems to us, is acceptable. And this is what's happening to Saul. Sam is going to answer him with a beautiful piece of parental poetry. My kids could probably quote the opening lines of this to me. He's going from prosecuting an attorney to judge as he lays out what God says. He says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey, or to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't care how many cups of coffee you drink, go back and obey. Right? He says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, divination being witchcraft. What's the punishment for witchcraft? You know? Death. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. What's the punishment for that? Think about that for just a second. Rebellion and insubordination are put on the same level as witchcraft and idolatry. God takes sin seriously. And my fear is that we don't. Not as much as he does. So, with this, Samuel's explanation and, and judgment finally get through that tangled web of lies and justifications that Saul has built up around himself. In verse 24 we see, uh, he says, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voices. Now come with me in my worship today. As far as half-hearted apologies go, that's a pretty decent one, right? We're still getting the people thrown under the bus there, but it, it seems like Saul is being contrite. But look at what Samuel says. He says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel goes to turn, and Saul reaches out and grabs his cloak and rips. Samuel takes that and says, a perfect metaphor. Just like you grabbed my robe and ripped it away, God has ripped away the kingdom from your hand. He's given it to a neighbor who is better than He says also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. When Saul says, I've sinned, please honor me before my... Oh, here we go. Okay. Now we see why Saul really wanted him to come with. I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And go back with me today and worship the Lord your God. Not my God. Lord, your God. Didn't want to be embarrassed. He'd already been embarrassed once before. Remember when Samuel left last time? He's about to do it again. Oh man, I could 
could stand up here in front of all those people. Don't do that to me. So Samuel goes back to Saul one more time. Saul worships the Lord. I promised I would get back to this way back in verse 11, so let's, let's get to it. We need to dive into this. In verse 11, we read that God regretted making Saul king. In verse 29, we see Samuel say, God will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man. And then in a few minutes, we'll see in verse 35 of repetition, God regretted making Saul king, which leaves us with a really basic question. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, which he is, if God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at all times, which he is, and if God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything, which he does. And, and we know that God created time, so therefore he's outside of time, right? When I bake a cake, I don't add flour, eggs, and lamps, and then put it in the oven, right? I'm outside of the cake when I make something, so God is outside of time when he creates it, which means he can see time from beginning to end, like a book. I turn the pages, and I just, there, there went a thousand years. A thousand years. God can, God can just go back and forth in time and see it all. That's great. How could he regret? Or another word that can be used is be grieved. How could he be grieved? How can tiny little arrogant, ignorant, time-constrained man pull one over on God? To the point where he's up in heaven saying, man, I didn't realize how messed up this Saul guy was. This is going to mess everything up. I want to answer this with a clumsy analogy. And I'm like, I'm like an ant trying to explain the guidance system on, a, on an F-16. But bear with me. The analogy goes like this. Say you have a kid. He's a good kid, but just like all of us, he's, he's a sinner, right? And as a parent, you're supposed to go through and look at that kid and identify things that maybe need to be uh, fixed or, or, or improved upon. And so maybe the kid isn't doing their homework, maybe not doing their chores, but you understand that the problem, the real problem is that they won't submit to those loved ones. And you know this is going to affect them their entire life, right? If they can't submit to mom and dad, how are they going to submit to a boss? How are they then going to submit to God? Let's say you told them to, to wash the dishes. I want you to wash the dishes back today, okay? And the next morning you get up, the sink is full of dishes. And you tell them, I want you to wash these dishes. That evening you go to make dinner and the sink is full of dishes and now the counter is full of dishes. And you tell them, I want you to wash these dishes right here. There's dish soap, dishes. And you get out of bed that night for a little snacky snack. You sneak down and get that last piece of cake. You creep into the kitchen with all the lights off because you don't want to wake anybody up. Right about the time you're reaching for that cake, bam, you hit a pot that skitters across the floor and breaks a bunch of glass. Wakes everybody up. Everybody comes in, you turn on the light. Now there's dishes in the sink, dishes on the counter, and dishes on the floor. And you turn to little Johnny and you say, little Johnny, if you don't do these dishes, you don't get to go on the field trip with your school tomorrow. Okay? Everybody goes back to bed. You get up in the morning. And you think, surely the dishes have been done now, right? Surely they'll be done now. I mean, I don't want to have to tell little Johnny, you can't go to the zoo, ride the little zoo train, get all the little animals. 
And he, you hear a little Johnny call from the other room, Dad, you gotta go. We're gonna be late to the field trip. So you head out and you make it as far as the hallway before the kitchen and step on the ladder. And you look down and now the dishes are coming out of the kitchen. And the sinks are on the counter and on the floor, they're coming out of the kitchen. And you turn to little Johnny and you say, I'm sorry, son, you can't go in the field today because the dishes are literally pouring out of the kitchen. Now, even though you knew little Johnny was going to be crushed and that he would be hurt by your actions, when you look at his face full of tears and you hear him crying in dismay, you might regret making it. But you would know that Johnny needed to learn responsibility. And that was infinitely more important than going to the zoo. Now, I said it was a clumsy analogy, right? Because of all the omnis I mentioned earlier, God doesn't get surprised when we don't do the dishes. He's not up there going, gee, I hope Lance Chew was good today. He knows exactly when I'm going to fall short. He knows exactly when I'm going to fall on my face. Every day he knows that. Just like he knew that Saul was going to fail before he sent Samuel to anoint him. But the knowledge of what is going to happen doesn't mean that he enjoys punishing people. He's not sitting up in heaven with a, a bucket of thunderbolts waiting for you to stub your toe and say a cuss word so he can zap you with a lightning bolt. He is in heaven knowing exactly what I'm going to do and seeing the earthly ramifications and grieving over the damage that those actions would do to me and those around me. I'll give you one more example, and this time it will be less metaphorical. Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In John chapter 11, we're learning about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Right? And we start in verse 3, and Jesus is out with his disciples, and Mary and Martha... Send word to Jesus. In verse 3, they say, So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And they, they head out to Judea. And all, along the way, Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, Just wake him up, boy. What's the problem? No, no, no. It's a death. He died. Sleep means die. Okay, he died. <clears throat> so they get there, and everybody's crying. Everybody's weeping. Mary comes out, Lazarus' sister, and she falls at Jesus' feet. She said, if you would have been here, you wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks around, and he sees everybody crying, and he sees Mary laying at his feet, crying. And then we get the shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. These tiny little words. But if we stop to think about them, it's like an atom bomb. From those two tiny little words, we see a vast and all-powerful God that loves us so much that even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he knew that everyone would be happy and stop crying. Jesus wept. Friends, don't let God be your grieving and a stumbling block. Instead, understand this for what it means. God is holy and just and will always do the right and just thing. But in that, he still cares. 
even when he is doing what is 100% right, he cares about the effects. And we see no greater example of that than in his son, Jesus Christ, Amen. who while we were still sinners, dead in our sins and transgressions, died on the cross for my sins and for yours. It's amazing. It's comforting. And I wish I, wish I could just end it there. Probably should, we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a little bit of business to attend to. Agag. Agag comes up. Samuel hacks him to pieces. I'll just sum up the last little couple of verses there. Agag comes up. Samuel hacks him up. And Samuel and Saul split ways and they never see each other again. And Samuel grieves. And God grieves. And Saul just goes on about his way. <laughs> and it is with this chapter that the book of Samuel moves away from Saul. From this point on, Saul, or 1 Samuel isn't about him anymore. And we'll still bump into him from time to time, but each time it'll be like driving past a dead skunk on the road, right? It stinks to high heaven, and you really don't want to hang out. This was, as I said, a transitional chapter. And though we're able to find parts of it that will bring us comfort and joy, there was Saul. The text is unflinching in describing Saul and his actions and what they revealed about his heart. And I've spent a long time with the text today because we had some big things that we needed to tackle, but I just want to offer this brief application of today's passage because I, I think as tragic as Saul's story is, there is value in it. And the, the application I think we can take from the last several chapters about Saul is summed up in the prophetic words of Samuel, the poetic words of Samuel. Have the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's easy to see on the written pages the sin of Saul, to to look at his milquetoast approach to God's word and, and say, of course Saul lost his kingdom. This guy was a schmuck. I mean, look at him. God said destroy everything. The guy comes back with a king and a bunch of livestock. Duh. That wasn't even close to what God said. I mean, how hard was it? God said do this, you do it. I would challenge us to look back over our week and apply that same statement that we just used on Saul to ourselves. How many times this week have we made excuses for something? Maybe a TV show we know we shouldn't be watching, or maybe a conversation we shouldn't have, shouldn't have had, or an attitude towards someone that does not honor God. Or maybe it's the way we view God. Are we praising Him daily for His forgiveness of sins? Are we seeking to put God's will above our own? Are we actively looking to obey God's word and follow all of its commands in all that we do? I mean, how hard is it? God says, do this. You just do it. After all, Jesus said, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Yesterday, uh, earlier this week, I thought it was yesterday, I think it might have been earlier this week, we lost a, a great warrior for Christ. Evan Gaming. He's half now. A guy by the name of Brother Andrew. If you don't know him, he's a uh, you might know him as Bible smuggler. If you don't know that, go home and Google it because he's got some really interesting books. 
but his books detail how he snuck Bibles into places where you could get killed for having a Bible. And he details how God protected him through that time and what God did with those Bibles that were given out. He has a quote that I want to read to you. It says, Persecution is an enemy the church has met and mastered many times. Indifference could prove to be a far more dangerous foe. Brothers and sisters, may we seek to not live lives of indifference, but lives dedicated to following God. And when we feel those cold arms of indifference to the things that God hates, slowly embracing our heart, may we not attempt to push them away with half-hearted empty gestures. Oh, I went to church on Sunday. I went to Bible study. I do fill in the blank. Where's your heart? Where is your heart in that? God says, I want you to listen to my voice. I want you to follow my will in your moment to moment, in your heart, not just your exterior, not just for the honor of elders. Because I, I think it's great that you come to worship on Sunday. I think it's great when you get involved in ministries, in Bible studies, and when you, when you take food to those in need. Those are all great, but are you listening to me in your heart? Are you hearing my voice through my word, through daily Bible reading? And are you applying what you hear? Are you a hearer and not a doer? Are you a hearer and a doer? He's given us help. He's given us the Holy Spirit to teach us how to live God's word out in your life. He doesn't expect us to do it alone. And I pray that the Holy Spirit does light a fire in us and the fire burns and, and causes us to look to God in every moment of our and apply God's word to every moment of our lives. But I want to challenge you this week. I'm challenging you as I was challenged as I prepared for the sermon. This week, take some time to examine your own life. Search out the areas where you are smiling and proclaiming, I did what you said. All the while knowing on the hidden side, in that secret place that no one sees but you and God, that you have some bleeding sheep. Today is a perfect day to start that process. We're going to take communion here in a second, and it's going to remind us of what Jesus did for us while we were still yet enemies. This is our chance to examine our life and, and, and look for those areas in our life where the bleeding sheep hang out. Pray and ask God to remove them. This meal is, is meant for believers as we remember our sins that we've been forgiven for, and if if you're here today and you haven't asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and you haven't made his life or your life his and your will his, today let this meal go by in just a little bit. But don't delay in your decision. If the past couple of years have shown us anything, it's how quickly this world can change. Come to Christ while there's still time, because one day there will be no more time. And we will all stand before Jesus in judgment. Those that have placed their faith in the fact that Jesus was born was fully man and fully God. He lived a sinless life and died an innocent man for your sins and for mine. And on the third day rose again bringing hope to all who believe. To those, judgment will pass over. But to those who would turn their hearts against God, it's a terrible judgment. An eternal judgment. 
and a dark place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I accept this offer of grace, the grace that is given to any who would believe. And join us next month as we remember what God has done for us. We're going to pray, and then, and then we'll sing a song, and as we sing there, you can go back and, and get your communion cup back there. Next month, we're actually going to have the deacons up front here. We'll have the uh, communion as we've always done it before. So we're looking forward to that. Gather your, your communion. Go back to your seat and let's worship God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that, that our hearts would be true to you, Lord. That our actions wouldn't just be lip service. That we wouldn't be doing things just for the honor of the elders. But that in everything we do, Lord, we're looking to your word for how to do it in a way that honors you. Lord, we... we we never want to be Saul. Proudly proclaiming that we have kept your word. Meanwhile, completely blind to the fact that we have not. Please, Lord, convict us if we have areas in our life like that. Give us your Holy Spirit to, to teach us how to make those go away. And Lord, may we have opportunities this week to share your love with our community. Lord, you give us the words to speak, Lord, because we know it's you that does it. It's your power. Lord, we just pray for the opportunity to be a part of what you're doing. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Amen.